0: Listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That?, a rare disease podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the content manager here at PatientWorthy. And today we're going to be discussing pheochromocytoma. It's a very rare type of neuroendocrine tumor that typically appears in the adrenal glands, which are located above the kidneys in the back of the upper abdomen. And to help in our discussion today, we have a very special guest. Miranda Edwards, the voice behind the website Theo versus Fabulous, has been documenting her experiences with pheochromocytoma for years. Miranda, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Colby. And I just wanted to start by saying thank you so much for shining a light on rare conditions like mine.
0: We're very happy to have you on the show, and we're always happy to let rare patients tell their stories. Miranda, I gave a very short definition of pheochromocytoma in the intro just a second ago, and I know there are many more considerations to this condition. Can you, to start, just give us an overview of pheochromocytoma for listeners who aren't familiar?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You actually summed it up quite well as far as the medical aspect, but we are missing the part of what it actually feels like to live with this disease. So I'll start by saying that it's a tumor that's actively secreting adrenaline in your body. It's wreaking havoc unexpectedly. It's like walking around with a ticking time bomb and never knowing when it will explode. I'll get more into that, but just imagine having a disease that most doctors haven't even seen in their career. Not only have most patients never heard of it, but even the medical community will often never treat someone with it. So I'm often their first patient. And I thought that part would get easier as time went on, but I'll be honest, it really just gets more difficult as the years go by. It's so rare, mainly because most people just go undiagnosed. Sadly, a lot of people are found to have this disease On autopsy. Honestly, the first time I heard the word, I felt like I was on an episode of house (laughs) or Grey's Anatomy. And that's why understanding these symptoms and what to look for is so important for both the patient and the doctors.
0: And so you were diagnosed with theochromocytoma when you were 19. So, what were those symptoms that initially brought you to the doctor?
1: I actually had strange symptoms here and there, like just as a teenager. Um, But it all really came to a head when I went on a trip to Cuba, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, I must not be drinking enough water in the heat here because I keep waking up and having this painful heart palpitation. Mind you, at the time, I didn't know what a heart palpitation was, so I just felt like my heart was beating really hard and, you know, it was hurting. And I would have this kind of like internal tremor, like a shaking. And I remember saying to myself like, oh, maybe this is what a hangover feels like. And I just kind of continued on with my life. Except when I got back home, the symptoms didn't go away. They actually got worse. I couldn't sleep. I would take small naps and always feel very hyper. And when I say I couldn't sleep, I literally mean that I was up all night, every night, and I would take like one hour interval naps just to kind of keep alive. Um, My hands were always shaking. I would sweat profusely for no reason. And I continued to have these funny heart flutters. And I was so young at the time that I wasn't checking my vitals or making note of anything. It progressively got worse in a short period of time between uh, 18 years old and 19. And the symptoms I'm explaining started hitting me all at once. That's what we call an attack. (laughs) Every day, I would take a shower in the morning for work. I would start to feel the heart palpitations setting in, this pain that's indescribable in the chest, like your heart is abruptly stopping and then being restarted. I would end up on the bathroom floor, just laying there thinking I was going to die. My head would start having like this pressure inside It was like it was being squeezed and the pain would come on so intensely and so quickly that I would lose my vision. I would lay on the bathroom floor, just rocking myself and holding my head, knowing that next the nausea would hit and I would just start vomiting. And once that would finish, I would be shaking uncontrollably. I would go from being what we call flushed, but at the time I would say like I'm all red and then I would go completely pale within seconds and eventually I would just become like this puddle of no energy on the floor. It would take about 30 minutes to kind of regain my energy. I would pick myself up, go blow dry my hair and just get ready for work. (laughs) The rest of my day being completely normal. And as these attacks progressed, I visited my family doctor to explain what was happening. And based on my age, he was betting that, you know, with me not getting enough sleep and drinking a lot of coffee, maybe, you know, my body was experiencing some kind of anxiety. So I would persist, like, you know, no, it's more than that. It's really like, I really didn't know how to explain it at the time, what was happening. And so he would ask me to come in while it was happening because. You know, my doctor's office was just down the street from my home. I lived in a very small town and I tried to explain to the doctor that during these attacks, you're completely debilitated and then you're completely fine afterwards. So by the time I would maybe get into his office, I would appear completely normal. So eventually these attacks would start to happen more frequently. And one night it just got worse than ever. I was certain I had had a heart attack. Like the chest pain was unlike anything I had felt before. My mom called an ambulance, but by the time they got there, my vitals were normal. I looked completely exhausted. It looked like I could barely open my eyes, but as far as they could tell from a medical standpoint, my, my vitals were normal. So my doctor let me know, like, if this happens to where it's worse, go to the ER. So that's what we did. We insisted that they take me to the emergency room And that would be the beginning of a two month long mystery diagnosis process.
0: Sounds so frustrating. And what scary symptoms to have that happen every single day.
1: Yeah. And then multiple times a day too. And, you know, when they start happening more, it's like, you know, I got used to this sort of habit where, you know, it would happen before work, for example. And actually later on, I realized that it was the shower. It was the warm water that was triggering the blood pressure, right? But at the time I didn't know that. So I just say, okay, it's shower time. It's time for my attack. And then eventually it started happening just completely unpredictably. And I would be at work, you know, talking to a client and then I would start shaking and, you know, again, go through all those symptoms and have to like go into the the restroom and excuse myself. And it's just, it was just, it was so awful.
0: And so once you went to the emergency room for this, then what was the diagnosis process like for pheochromocytoma?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It really often gets confused with the heart or even, even panic attacks because of the way that the symptoms present, you know, they're so sudden and they're so abrupt and we often will focus as a patient, we'll focus on the heart mainly and how that feels because it's really, to me, it was the most painful and scary symptom that I had. So when I was admitted that night, the first thing that they noticed was my troponin levels were high. And for those people listening who don't know what that is, it's a way that they check for heart damage in the blood. That's when they went into really panic mode and they were saying to themselves, why would a healthy 19-year-old literally have a heart attack? So they admitted me and ran some like basic initial testing. The first red flag was that my potassium was almost at zero. So they treated me for that. They, you know, admitted me for about four days and they controlled the pain. And I'm sure like, I can't remember all of the details at that time because it was just so traumatic, but I do remember that they were incredibly nice. It was a small hospital. So, you know, they didn't have maybe the, uh, you know, the amount of resources that they needed, but they did do some testing and they discharged me four days later. Uh, I still didn't know what was wrong with me. But later on that day, I actually got a call from the Ottawa Heart Institute, which is a larger teaching hospital, and they said I needed to come be admitted right away. And that's the beginning of when I spent two months there in order to get the diagnosis. I was, of course, the youngest one in this Heart Institute, but I had the worst vitals out of everyone. And my resting heart rate at that time was about 180 to 190, just sitting calmly reading a magazine. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. And honestly, to me, it sounds crazy, but it actually felt normal. It gets as if my body just got used to just constantly being in stuck in fight or flight, which was so strange because of course, you know, when you're in a heart institute, you're constantly hooked up to a monitor. So they, they're they always able to see any abnormalities or, you know, any trends. And so the interesting part was that when I would have this attack that I was explaining to everybody, they would notice that my heart rate would dip down super low. And that doesn't add up technically with what is documented with pheochromocytoma. And so it's actually a very important fact because most patients do experience a high heart rate most often, but during this episode, it actually dips down low. And so later, I'd found out that the small ER that I first went to, to ha- they actually ran a test for theochromosaytoma. And they called this hospital and let them know. And that's what led to my confirmed diagnosis. I remember a team of specialists walking in maybe about a month into my hospital stay and just told me we're straight out, that I had a one in a million tumor. It's called a theochromocytoma. This is what's causing all of my symptoms and they would have to operate right away.
0: And so once you were diagnosed, what treatment options were discussed with you and what did you decide to do?
1: Once they confirmed the mass with an MRI, that was the very first thing they did was they needed imaging in order to visualize the tumor. And so they revealed the size of the tumor was very large. It was the size of a softball. And surgery is the only cure for this disease. It's the first line of action that they'll take. Um, And it happens quickly as they really want to get it out ASAP, because the longer it stays in, if it's actively secreting, which most of them are, the more danger you're in for risk of stroke, risk of heart attack, as I very well knew, because I had had a heart attack. So they had to prep me for surgery by lowering my blood pressure and heart rate. That takes weeks to do to safely do it. And the surgery is risky. That's what they were explaining to me. You know, the number one complication is your vitals spiking up due to the adrenaline output of the tumor. If you think of it like this, it's like trying to remove a grenade you don't poke a grenade, right? So you have this active secreting tumor that's in your body and they have to find a way to remove it, manipulate it without setting it off essentially. And that's why the prep for this surgery is so important. And that's why they do that special period of time where they're lowering your heart rate and your blood pressure.
0: With this type of tumor being so rare, did you feel like you were adequately equipped with the information and support that you needed?
1: <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but no, honestly, no. And you know what? I, I will start by saying I can't really blame anyone for that. And you know, I'll explain what I mean by this. The doctors did their absolute best to explain a very complex situation to me while being very young, very scared, And in an emergency type setting, right? So I was completely thrown off guard at that time. And I just had the mentality of trust the doctors. The doctors are here for you. They know best. You don't know more than them. Later, I would find out the value in self-advocacy. But at that time, I just went through the emotions. It all happened fast. And I just wanted to go back to being a normal 19-year-old. So I was thinking to myself, if they can make these symptoms go away, deal, let's go, let's do this, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I didn't know what questions to ask or what to learn. I just focused on taking in as much information from them as I could and just waited anxiously for the surgery. You know, I had never been operated before. I was an otherwise healthy young girl. So I I wish I had known the importance of having a surgeon who specializes in this tumor. One of the major issues with the approach of my surgery was that they decided on a laparoscopic approach. And with the tumor size being so large, it really should have been automatically a open procedure. And what that means is that a laparoscopic approach is they go in with cameras. So these small little cameras basically become their eyes, and then they make a tiny incision at the just above the groin, and they they try to remove the tumor that way. Again, if you think back to the earlier information I was sharing about the grenade kind of view, it's very difficult to, to go in with that approach. So Having full access and view of the tumor is so important because it's a delicate removal process. And if they touch it, it's gonna secrete mass amounts of adrenaline all at once. That's why they do that special prep and that's why they have to reduce the pressure so low. So the idea is that if the pressure is low enough to begin with, it won't hit a deadly level when it skyrockets during surgery. So if I had known what I know now, I have insisted on having an open procedure, and I'll tell you why. (laughs) There were complications during the removal. During the laparoscopic procedure, my vena cava was nicked, so that's the main artery to your heart. I bled out and flatlined for just over three minutes on the table. They ended up having to convert to an open emergency procedure, which means They are opening your abdomen to get a full view. And when you're flatlined, the cut is quick. Everything is done in emergency life-saving mode. So the goal changed from getting the tumor out to bring me back to life. And after three blood transfusions, a vascular repair, and essentially giving my heart direct CPR by shocking it, they eventually got me back, and well, of course, I'm here talking about it, um, at which point they quickly removed the tumor, and I woke up, who knows how many hours later, I think I actually was in the ICU, sedated for over 24 hours, just to give my body time to recover, and so by the time I woke up, I felt like I was in a coma for months, I was very confused, and I just remember looking at my partner at the time, who was my now husband, and I said, Will you bring me to Mexico? <laughs> and that was really the last thing that I remembered. You know, I, I was so grateful for the team to have been able to save my life. It's just the only thing I could have known at that time differently was the importance of the type of procedure they chose based on the size of the tumor.
0: It sounds like the focus of the surgery really had to shift dramatically there in the middle of it, you know, from going to trying to move this tumor to. Trying to save your life. Once they were done, how did you feel that they give you the indication that that would be it? The surgery was a success.
1: <laughs> Honestly, the, the initial direction of where they were focused was just everybody was celebrating in a way. Everybody was grateful. You know, the uh, I remember the entire surgical team being in my room when I woke up and they were crying. Like the anesthesiologist was actually crying and he was like, "You are a fighter." And you know, like they really it hit them hard. You know, they're, and this is the thing when you're not used to doing this procedure, like it's not like a procedure you're doing like clockwork, those types of surprises are exactly that they are a surprise. And so that's why I say, I'm grateful that the team was able to pivot and be able to know what to do in that emergency setting. But because of that, it would lead to later problems for me. The main thing being how it affected my quality of life so young, I was in debilitating chronic pain because of the nerve damage that was created from the quick cut of the operation. You know, I remember each time I would see my surgeon asking him, like, when is the pain going to go away? When is it going to reduce? Like, when am I going to be able to wear pants, you know, like put an elastic band against my abdomen, you know, like anything like that. I couldn't touch it I couldn't you know there there was so much sensitivity and a lot of referred pain so having that type of intensity of pain is very difficult and so of course I wanted to know what to expect you know he was confident that it would subside and it would go away and you know I'm I am pretty resilient so I said okay you know I'll, I'll continue on but what I didn't realize is that None of that was what mattered. What mattered was that when the tumor was taken out in an emergency fashion, all of the delicacy and all the things that they strive to do during this type of surgery was abandoned. And so when they removed the tumor, the capsule, what the tumor is kind of protected with, it ruptured and it spilled cells into the surgical bed, which is my body. And so at that point, that what should have been when everybody was on high alert, except I didn't know any of that. I had no idea of that happening and it wasn't mentioned and it was it was just, you know, OK, well, we're going to do follow up and, you know, it, it just everything carried on as it's going to and I'll explain all of that. But that is a really, really important factor, I think, for anybody who's dealing with this is that, you know, knowing the ins and outs of the procedure at the very least, and having an experienced team is very important. Even looking at like, for example, your your operative report afterwards can kind of fill in the blanks of what questions you might want to ask and kind of give uh, more clarification to because they, they won't tell you unless you ask.
0: And when you were 24, you received some news about a change in your condition. Uh, can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, so I will bring you back to the worst day of my life. After I had the surgery, I was told that I would have lifelong follow-up, as everyone should. This is a lifelong condition once you have it. There's a high risk of recurrence and a lot of factors attached to that. So the first thing they did was all sorts of imaging to see if there was clean margins and to see if any cells were lighting up. With nuclear imaging... If there's any uh, cells from this type of tumor, they glow, they'll light up. And so in, in the imaging that I did, nothing lit up, everything was clear. I passed all the tests and I was told that I would be monitored from that point on every six months. And I'd have to repeat the 24-hour urine test in some labs each time that I would go um, a 24-hour urine test is to test for what they call catecholamines, that is the adrenaline hormone that they are testing for, and they're able to get a sense of, okay, is it is it high? Is there presence of the disease back in the body? That's how they're able to do that. And then they explain that I'd have to go on to do genetic testing. That's a, a pretty important point for a lot of people because whether or not you're positive for a gene mutation will be able to uh, further give them clarification of how, how likely it is for it to recur or how aggressive it may be if it does recur. Recently, I actually saw an episode you guys did on VHL, which is a one of the gene mutations that I was tested for uh, that causes pheochromocytoma. So I actually tested negative for all genetics, and they saw that as a great thing. Uh, They told me that it's almost impossible for it to come back without a genetic mutation, that my scans are clear, and that my body will readjust and I'll go back to normal. And except I didn't. Uh, My worst nightmare came true because I continued to have these same symptoms that I did before surgery. They weren't quite as intense. Like those symptoms are unmistakable. Somebody who's experienced these symptoms, these episodes, these attacks that I'm describing, it is unlike anything else. And so you know when they are those symptoms. So the problem was with everything coming back normal on my follow ups from a medical standpoint, my endocrinologist was certain that I was just experiencing anxiety. At this time, I was in my early 20s and I just wanted, that promise of normalcy. So I didn't fully accept that, but I kind of, you know, I said, okay, well, what, what more can I do? You know, I, I didn't know what else to do other than let the doctors know what my symptoms were, what was happening with me, and each time I was being met with the same answer, you know, that you've been through something traumatic, you're probably just very anxious, you know, and so I, I moved on. I got married. I advanced in my career. I pushed to have a normal life. And, you know, when your symptoms are dismissed for so long, or you're made to believe that it's something else, you eventually just shut down. You get tired of repeating the same things and not having a different outcome. So for four years, I played this sort of game of going in for my follow-ups, being told I was fine, and then convincing myself that I was, (laughs) And so to bring you back to the day when I was turning 24, I had finally accepted that I was fine. And I was expecting to go in and just get it over with Hear that my labs were normal. See you in a year. But I was met with something very different. My husband and I were told by a resident that my urine levels were high. And we sat there stunned, somewhat understanding, but not understanding. And so I responded with, what's high? And he proceeded to explain that the levels of catecholamines in my urine test were high, which confirms a recurrence. And at that moment, we didn't know the extent. Like, we couldn't know more until I had imaging done in a full panel of tests. But I knew I I had known the whole time. I knew it in my body. I knew it in my gut. And I just felt so angry in that moment that I had been saying what everything that I had been saying was right. And as much as I was shocked, I can't say I was surprised. Like I had been saying I wasn't okay for years at that point. And I just felt like so much rage that I was having to hear it like this. And I didn't know at that time, at that moment, the extent of what was going to happen. All I could think about was having another surgery. Of course, there was a lot of fear attached because of what happened during my first one. And I just thought it was going to be the same process. So fast forward to the imaging, the same endocrinologist that told me that I was fine for all those years was now telling me that my disease was metastatic that it had spread to distant sites and that it was now considered terminal. And once it spread, surgery is no longer a cure. It can only be managed. I wasn't understanding anything she was saying. Uh, My brain was just completely numb. I remember hearing my husband say, is she gonna die? To which she responded, like this robotic prognosis of based on the literature, maybe one to five years. And I sat through that diagnosis completely void of emotion, but inside all I felt was that rage. And I used that rage to take control of my situation. I found an endocrinologist that specializes in these very rare tumors. I begged him through direct email to take my case. I didn't know what was to come, but I knew that I needed someone who would really hear me. And I didn't accept what they were saying. I couldn't accept that I was going to die just like that. I didn't know if I was in denial. I still don't know, but I just knew that I wouldn't, I I knew that I wouldn't continue on just blindly trusting what people told me. And that's the day that I became my own best advocate.
0: Part of this process and this follow-up here and an outlet during all this, I know you've been documenting your experiences with Pheochromocytoma at your website. It's Mm -hmm. called Pheo versus Fabulous, as we mentioned, for many years now. Uh, Can you talk about your decision to start writing about your journey and what the experience has been like?
1: After the dust settled from the initial shock of my diagnosis, After I'd secured my medical dream team, I felt this overwhelming responsibility to prevent this from happening to someone else. Holding on to that experience and holding on to the information that led up to those events, I kept saying to myself, what could I have done differently? But I didn't want to live my life beating myself up of what I could have done. So I decided to make an actual difference. I just never wanted someone else to hear the words that I heard. I didn't want someone else to have to see the pain in their husband's eyes. And I just knew that I had to channel all of this pain into a purpose. And I needed my story to matter. So before I was preparing to have my surgery, this is the second surgery at this point, I knew I had to start writing. I didn't know what was going to happen. I, at that point, didn't know if I would even survive the surgery because of, you know, how the first one went. And despite the fact that I had an incredibly experienced team, this was a whole other ball game with this type of surgery I was having. It was called the debulk, bulk So that's like, you know, we're removing organs. We're removing every, you know, tumor that we can, uh, you know, we're removing like everything to be able to give me a chance at prolonged survival. So I just had no idea what was to come. And so I figured if I can get the bones of my blog written, my words will live on forever. And it may bring comfort to someone to know that they're not alone. It may teach someone what questions to ask, or, you know, perhaps let someone know that it's not so crazy to think that their disease can come back. My goal was to share my journey without knowing if I would even have one. I wanted to fill in the gaps of the literature that I so desperately needed when I was trying to navigate this disease. That's when I made a promise to the world and myself that I would never let this disease take away who I am. And at that moment, I labeled that my fabulous. (laughs) And from that day on, I shared every aspect of my journey the good, the bad, and the fab. I never knew, though, that my blog would be so relatable to so many people because this disease is so rare, you would think that, you know, oh, there's there might be like a few subset of people that read this, but it was starting to be read all around the world and it just brought light to the fact that it's not as rare as they say. And I never knew it would lead so many people to getting a diagnosis, to linking my symptoms to their own experiences, to bringing my words printed out to their doctors, and then doctors beginning to use my experience as a resource to prepare their patients. And so what started as a way for me to heal and cope and process what was happening to me at every stage became sort of a survival guide for so many others like me.
0: You speak about living with a chronic terminal condition, not only on your website, but across social media as well. What are you hoping that people will learn from your story?
1: Sharing what I've learned through my unique experience has always been my number one. There was a long period of time where I was just so sick literally hanging on for dear life. And I was unable to write or even speak. So I wasn't able to, you know, go to my normal coping mechanism of writing and sharing. And I felt like a prisoner to my own body. I felt like I was being given up on before it was my time. And at that time, my husband fought so hard for me when I didn't have a voice. And so When I got my voice back, I just knew that I wanted to spread hope. Awareness is always going to be at the core of my message and everything that I share. But hope is the hardest thing to hold on to. And I wanted others to see that despite all the odds, it's possible to not only survive, but to thrive. And it's okay to want more than just making it through the day the minute we hear palliative or terminal or, you know, these scary words, our expectations change for what we expect from ourselves and out of life. It's no one's fault. It's just, it's the way it's presented. You know, it's, it's heavy. And then you start to not expect more than, you know, just being able to get through the day. And so I really wanted to share not only managing the primary disease, but also understanding the link between the secondary conditions that this disease causes. Because that for me is what kept me alive. When you're in the condition that we are, like there's stages where we are, you know, so sick and you know, I did constant, constant treatment for years. So it's exhausting in those times to comb through medical research and journals and try to Decode what these doctors are saying when we have all this brain fog. So, I try and share in an uplifting, relatable way that's easy to understand. And I wanted to not only share my words, but put a face to rare terminal disease. Like, sometimes I want to show that someone doesn't have to look sick to be incredibly sick. And at other times, I try to share every aspect of my life so that people can choose to take what they need from it, and whether that be self-advocacy tips, coping skills, or specific information on the disease itself, well, let's not forget, (laughs) staying fabulous, but I also love that the people, other people's friends and family, you know, they can see from a different perspective and not just hear it from their loved one. I find a lot of people have come to me and said to me that, you know, Something I shared or something I posted was really helpful for them to be able to show to, you know, their partner or their loved one. And so my purpose changes each day, you know, I'm actively living and navigating this every single day, at the very core of my being I just know that sharing our patient experience with rare disease can make such an impact.
0: And let's talk about some of that. What advice would you have for someone who is newly diagnosed with chromocytoma? you know, advice that you didn't have when you were first starting out?
1: If you have a pen and paper handy as you're listening, get it now. (laughs) No, but um, the, the very first thing that I will say is listen to your instinct, listen to your gut, you know, your body and you know, when something isn't right and knowing the importance of self-advocacy is your greatest strength with this disease. When you're newly diagnosed, it all happens so quickly and there's so much information. So write things down. Don't be shy to ask for things to be repeated. I had no idea what questions to even ask at the beginning. So connecting with others like me who do know at this point is so important. And the very first thing that you will have to navigate is surgery. Like being comfortable with your team and an experienced surgeon is first. Most importantly, understanding that this is a lifelong disease. You will require lifelong follow-up. Even if it's a benign tumor, it's not always a one and done as they call it. And that's why they stress the importance of being seen and reevaluated. For me, because my tumor was considered benign at the beginning and I tested negative for genetics and I had what seemingly felt like a good case, you know, to where I would have, you know, great future results, but that was not the case. Right after surgery, genetic testing is required. And I just want to say it's not the only factor. Like testing negative for a gene mutation doesn't mean, doesn't automatically give you the clear. I was led to believe that it almost couldn't come back because I was deemed what they call sporadic and it's expected to be symptomatic for a short period of time after your surgery. So I would suggest asking your team how long you should expect to feel that way. If you continue to have the symptoms past that, don't stop pushing for answers because I am telling you, it is not normal to have these symptoms. And even if your labs are normal, there is more digging that can be done. And I promise you, there's something that they can be doing to find out. Knowing what testing that you require for your follow-ups is something that I would really highly recommend learning. Again, in the beginning, it's all, it's all a big blur and I get that. But once you start connecting with other people and, you know, learning more and more, all of the pieces of like your very complicated puzzle will start coming together because I can tell somebody, oh, well, for your follow-ups, you're going to need a 24 hour urine catecholamines. You're going to need a chromogranin A and you're going to need need plasma metanephrines. And maybe they're going to want to throw in a -A 5-HAIA. It's like, how is anybody supposed to understand that? You know what I mean? So Taking the time to break those down and understand what testing that you should be having in these follow-ups is really important. And I'll just quickly touch on why. I didn't know at the time, but it could have actually made the difference between confirming my recurrence much sooner. My endocrinologist wasn't running the entire panel needed for the tests that I required for the lifelong follow-up. I was only having my urine testing. I wasn't having my blood tested. When you don't have your blood tested, they're missing the tumor marker and they're missing the metanephrines, which is again the adrenaline, but in the blood. That's a huge missing piece to the aspect because even if the urine comes back normal, uh, the plasma metanephrines could have come back elevated. Or for example, the tumor marker absolutely would have been elevated. And that's what kind of leads them to being able to figure out, okay, what can we do? Maybe we'll do a scan or maybe we'll look for it in another way. So knowing the test is like the, the biggest thing. And with that, when you have the testing, always look at your own results. You know, if you get a copy of your lab results, start looking at the results, getting to know what your numbers look like, how they're trending. If you see them going up every so often, even if they're not high enough for them to make like a confirmed recurrent diagnosis, at least you'll be able to see that there's something happening and that you're not crazy, you know? I actually have a blog on how to prepare for your doctor's appointment. It's actually one of the best resources that I can offer on how to do all of this. So that's where I would recommend you go after here.
0: You mentioned friends and family earlier. Mm
1: -hmm. What are
0: some ways that they can be supportive of someone with this condition?
1: I can offer a lot of advice, um, you know, practical advice on how to be supportive, you know, when somebody is ill. But the one thing I do want to start by saying to the patient who's experiencing this is that it's inevitable that there's going to be times that you're going to feel very alone. And we are also going to have times where friends and family won't know how to cope. And we may have relationships that fade away. It's happened to me. It's, it's a sad part of this, but it is, it's not always going to be the case, but it can happen. And it does happen quite often. The best thing that I have to offer for friends and family to be able to support is first and foremost, just listen, listen to your loved one. And when they're telling you what's going on with them, just believe them. Don't question it. Don't, you know, just just believe what they're saying. And make your loved one know that even if you don't fully understand what's happening with them, you are there for them and you will be there for them through it. What's complicated and often very frightening for everyone involved is seeing the attacks. It's very unpredictable and it's very stressful for everyone involved. The helpless feeling will never go away, but there are ways to get through it together. When we have these symptoms, these episodes, these attacks, we often can't communicate our needs. So having a discussion when all is calm is so important. There needs to be somebody close to you who knows how to respond without being asked or prompted in any way like knowing what medications to give, knowing to be quiet and asking other people to do the same, Uh, you know, knowing to elevate the legs, uh, you know, just to take the pressure off of the chest. I actually wrote a blog on my attack survival guide because I've been doing this a long time. So I would recommend everyone read that to know how to respond. And I'm not just talking about The patient. I'm talking about the loved ones as well, Uh, the the caregiver, the family, the the friends, even. So, keeping your loved one at ease is one of the best ways that you can help. It's no joke living with a grenade in your body. Understanding the importance of a low stress environment is important for everyone involved because these are fight or flight hormones that are being secreted in your loved one's body. So they're literally stress hormones. And these attacks can be triggered by stress. Knowing those triggers is just, it's really, really important. And one of the hardest things from a patient perspective that a lot of us with chronic or terminal disease experience is people giving advice without truly understanding their specific condition. Like, Although it can be well-intentioned, you know, it's exhausting for us to have to explain the complexity of our illness and why we maybe cannot practice yoga in order to make us feel better. You know, I would say like, learn as much as you can about the illness and just be there, you know, be there to listen, be there to go for a walk when the person is restless or, you know, be there to speak up for them when they're nervous at their doctor's appointment, Uh, you know, offer specific ways of helping, like easing their load, This is a really important one. And I saved it for last because I really want it to, you know, stand in everybody's mind is that please be sensitive to the fact that this is not only stressful for us, but we actually have adrenaline hormones secreting, like circulating through our bodies at all times. And so if we say something that's out of character or respond in a way that you're not used to, all I can say is forgive, you know, don't take it personally. I can, I can tell you of so many times where I felt like I had no control over my reactions or my body. And I would have never, ever responded in the uh, irrational way that I did. But when you're dealing with this type of, uh, you know, hormone regulation in your body, it's, it really is at times impossible. So what I recommend is having like a code word in the house or, you know, like tumor, you know, when you say tumor, it's just kind of like letting those, those around, you know, that you need a bit of space or a little extra sensitivity, you know, like not walk on eggshells, but you know, like just have your own kind of care plan of how you want to deal with that. But I just find that it, it, it prevents a lot of unnecessary arguments and bickering and things that wouldn't have happened if the person just wasn't themselves.
0: And if someone wants to learn more about pheochromocytoma or is looking for support, Mm -hmm. what resources are available?
1: Although there's not necessarily an abundance of resources, the ones that are there are great ones. So para Alliance is a great tool to learn like A to Z about the disease. If you go on their website, and you hit the education page, you're gonna learn from the very beginning, everything from you know undiagnosed patient, a newly diagnosed patient, symptoms and testing, uh, and the testing that I was referring to earlier, like they break down the exact tests you need, the exact imaging you might need, uh, treatments, different stages of, of the disease. They're amazing. And they are really like the main and one of the only resources that are available to us, but they are truly incredible for informing the patient themselves, the caregivers, the loved ones, even the doctors. So that is my go-to is Geopara Alliance. And of course, my blog, Fio versus Fabulous, um you know, it offers less of well I can't even say it offers less of a medical perspective. It's a patient perspective. But it does also have like months and months of validated research of the treatments that I went through and, you know, procedures to prepare for those treatments. And I have verified everything with my team. Like I never share medical information without, you know, validating everything and confirming things. So not only is there a lot of great medical information, but a lot of practical, just everyday advice for living with this. And also it just sometimes help, like, you know, sometimes it's just comforting to read somebody's story that very much correlates with what you experience and it's helpful to share that with friends and family so that they can get more of a a vulnerable personal view versus just sterile medical brochures you know and the last place that I would say is support from others is just so important like again knowing you're not alone So there's a big Facebook community support group that is for undiagnosed patients, newly diagnosed patients, long-term survivors like me, and also uh, caregivers. So I highly recommend finding your people, like finding your tribe, and this will make it so much easier.
0: And is there anything else you want others to know about your story?
1: I think if, if I were to have to like, you know, sum up what I would want somebody to take from my message, I would start by saying, never be scared to fight for what you believe is right for your own health. I always remind others, like no one will fight harder for you than you will for yourself. And there will be times that you will get overwhelmed, that you will question everything, and you may even want to just give up. And it's hard living with a disease that not many understand. But I want you to know that it's in those moments that you will learn your greatest strengths. Most importantly, never doubt the value of your quality of life. I I no longer think in this way. But you know, for a period of time, when you feel like you have kind of a big giant clock along your on your head, and you're you know, you're feeling like you're counting down the minutes kind of thing like your happiness and your quality of life can be the difference between you truly living and just surviving. So I've done both. And I can say with confidence that learning your value and living with purpose is worth all of what you'll go through to be able to get there. And I've lived literally like I was dying. And although I may not suggest the extremes of what I've done, I would recommend learning the importance of living a low stress lifestyle. This disease can take a lot of pieces from you, but that's why I always say we will not let it take our fabulous.
0: Well, Miranda, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show to tell us about your experiences. I think you offered a lot of great advice and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate being able to share on your platform.
0: Absolutely. And if you'd like to learn more about Miranda and her journey, check out her website at fioversusfabulous.com. You can also follow along on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash Fabulous. And you can find out more about the Theo Para Alliance by visiting their website at feopara.org. And we will leave a link to both of those websites in the show notes for this episode. Remember, you can always keep up with the latest in rare disease news by visiting patientworthy.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for patientworthy on those platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It may seem like a small thing, but a review or rating really does go a long way toward helping us out. Finally, if you have any questions about the podcast or perhaps an idea for a future episode, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to colby at patientworthy.com. That does it for today's episode. Thank you once again to Miranda Edwards, the voice behind Fio versus Fabulous, for joining us on the show today. And as always, thank you for listening.